We're looking this morning at Ruth chapter 4. We're going to read the totality of the chapter, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read down to verse 22. Ruth 4, 1 to 22. And before we do, um, Joseph got me a cough drop. Good man. Thank you. Or a peppermint. I'll take either. All right. Before we do, let me pray for us, and then let's look at God's word together. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to sit under the ministry of your word. We thank you that you are the one who has said that through the foolishness of the message preached, you are committed to save those who believe. And our God, we pray that you would be merciful to us this morning and working in our souls as your word is read and preached. We ask that you would show us Jesus. We would see your son in his mediatorial glory. We pray, our God, that you would open the eyes of our hearts and that you would open the ears of our hearts and that you would give us grace to see and to hear and hearts that understand that we might turn to you and that we might receive everything that you would instruct us in this morning. We acknowledge our God unless you build the house. We labor in vain who build it. And so we look to you expectantly, and we pray that you would be merciful as your word is preached. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and now as we come to this concluding section, the writer of this book uh, tells us, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Eli Melech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times of Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Eli Melech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon, and to Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together build up the house of Israel, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be known in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth 
and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of God endures forever. Well, I don't know how much you labored uh, as you were having your first child to come up with the right name for your first child. Names, even in our day, carry so much significance. And I know for Anna and I, it was a great challenge as we thought about, are we going to name our first son Elijah? Are we going to name him Micah? What middle names are we going to give him? Why are we going to name our children? What we're going to name them? And and then you have the parents weighing in and they're giving you all of their, oh, I hope you don't name him this. And well, can we name him after one of the grandfathers? And can we keep the family name in line? And, And we have that dynamic even in our day in some lesser sense than the Israelites had in their day. In in the days in which Ruth was written, uh, your name was everything in Israel. Um, Keeping the family name meant that you had a place before God. And, And having a name among the people of God and being numbered among the people of God was the most significant thing if you were part of the Old Covenant Church. In fact, if you've ever labored through the book of Numbers, and those long list of names of whom you know nothing except their names, the reason you know their names are because God takes account of the names of his people and God recognizes their names. And as he redeems them to himself, the Bible says that he inscribes the names of his people on his heart. We love singing that hymn that says, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. Names have such a huge significance in redemptive history. And here as we come to the end of this story about Ruth, and the book is named after Ruth. The book bears her name, and yet in a very real sense, the book could be called Boaz, couldn't it? Because as we come to this final chapter, Boaz has all the preeminence. The name of Boaz uh, is, is overshadowing everything else in this chapter. It's not Ruth who is largely spoken of here. It is the kinsman redeemer. And as we come to the end and the conclusion of this wonderful book of providence, it's a tragedy, Ruth and Naomi going down into Moab, being emptied there, Naomi losing her husband, Ruth losing her husband, Orpah losing her husband, and then coming back to Israel and God filling, as it were, Naomi and Ruth again by providing for them as Ruth was able to go and glean in the fields of Boaz And as God showed that he was casting his wings over these women and that he was bringing them out to a place of rich fulfillment again by his grace. And as God is weaving together all of these things, we come to the glorious climax of this story. And one of the things that we see just 
in in a bird's eye view of Ruth chapter 4 is that God is at work in the lives of lots of his people all through the same event. It's very interesting. Um, I heard John Piper many, many years ago say, um, we often think that uh, when something happens in our life, something um, seemingly out of the ordinary, um, someone gets sick or some other kind providence happens, that, that God is doing this for me. And, and we tend to think, what is God doing in my life? And, and what, what is this about for me? And, and we're, very, we're very bent on thinking narcissistically that everything's about us and revolves around us. And what is God doing here for me? And, and Piper went on to say, the reality is God is oftentimes and can be doing 10,000 different things through the same event. He can be accomplishing hundreds and thousands of his purposes through the same event. When we come to Ruth 4, we see that's what's happening. This is the picture of redemption accomplished. And, and yet it's not just what's going on in Ruth's life. It's not just what's going on in Naomi's life. It's not just what's going on in Boaz's life. It's God working his purpose out to, uh, to redeem a people for himself, to preserve the name of a people for himself, to give them an everlasting name and an everlasting inheritance. And, and he's working out his purposes for all of time, not just for the situation here, but for all of redemptive history through one event, through this transaction between Boaz and this other kinsman redeemer. We're going to see this morning <clears throat> three things as we consider that. First, we're going to see uh, redemption um, pursued. And then secondly, we're going to see uh, redemption carried out. And finally, we're going to see redemption brought to fruition. Redemption pursued. We'll notice that um, at the end of chapter 3, and you have to read this in context, notice the last thing that Naomi says to Ruth. She says to Ruth, after uh, contriving that plan, the really bad plan, uh, to go into the, the fantasy suite, the, 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 the threshing floors of Boaz, and to lay at the feet of Boaz, and to perfume herself, and, and to go in there to the bachelor, and to make herself available to him. And Boaz up, acting with such godliness and uprightness and notice as as Ruth has come home now notice what Naomi says to her she says wait my daughter until you know how the matter turns out for the man will not rest but will settle the matter today now how does Naomi know is she speaking prophetically we don't know how does she know uh, maybe it's just that she knows what kind of man Boaz is she knows that he is a man full of kindness and compassion. She's seen how large his heart is toward a foreigner like Ruth. She's seen how selfless and how giving he is compared compared to the other men in Israel. She's seen that he stands out in a different way and his godliness and his kindness and his Christ-likeness, if we can say that, is exemplary. And, and she knows that he's going to do this. Redemption will be accomplished. She's telling Ruth, wait, because redemption will be accomplished. Now, there's a lesson here for us because uh, the book of Ruth is a microcosm of the whole of the scriptures. It's a, it's a microcosm of everything else the Bible teaches. And everywhere else the Bible is teaching us to wait on the Lord. 
and to wait for the Lord to redeem. And we don't like that. We, we, we want to add something. We want to do something. We want to we contribute something. We want to quiet our guilty consciences with something. If I could just do something. Um, one of my good friends told me he was witnessing to, um, to two Mormons recently. And, and he said to them, um, he said, so how, how will you have your sins forgiven um, and they said, by doing enough good works. And he said, how will you know when you've done enough good works? And he said, one of them said, well, you don't. You just got to keep doing it. See, that's built into your conscience and my conscience and your heart and my heart by nature. That's not just something that Mormons and cults believe. That's something we in self-righteousness love. And the Bible says nothing about Ruth doing anything for redemption except waiting. Wait, wait on the Redeemer. Naomi says he will finish it. Literally in Hebrew, he will finish it. The Redeemer will accomplish the redemption that has already been prepared. And isn't it marvelous that you see God has already prepared the redemption? God has already been showing that everything that's happened to Ruth has already been prepared. And every single event in this book, God has orchestrated. God has overseen. God has governed. From all of eternity, God was working out the plan of redemption. The preparations were made. And you know, it's interesting. It's interesting that in this book, there are two places where the preparations of redemption thrown under the figure of God's sovereign providence come to light. Um, one time is back in chapter 2 where, where we were told that, um, that it, it, it just so happened that Boaz was in the field. That's the language of the Hebrew. It just so happened. And here, notice in chapter 4 that we're told Boaz has gone to the gate. He's gone to the place where the elders make decisions. He's gone to the the county courthouse. He's gone where the the magistrates are. He's gone where the legal system works, where the jurisprudence takes place. He's gone to the place where disputes are settled. He's gone to the place where contracts are made. He's gone to the place where the leaders are leading. And, And notice this. We're told by the writer, notice verse 1, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down, and behold, behold, the other Redeemer. (laughs) It just so happened. Boaz was sitting at the gate, and lo and behold, the other guy who got in the way of Boaz being able to marry Ruth in the last chapter, that guy just shows up. He's out for a stroll. Walking by, the language is, is ripe with the understanding that God has already prepared what's about to happen. Boaz is not making it happen. Remember, Boaz, as the typical redeemer, was willing to forfeit his own desires to marry Ruth out of his commitment and devotion to the Lord and his word and especially his law. So Boaz was not taking matters into his own hands. Boaz, remember, we saw last time, he was, he was ready to trust the Lord. He was ready to take from the Lord what the Lord would give him. Now, that's, let me say this this morning, that is a monumentally difficult thing, to be at a place where we can say, I will take from the Lord what he will put in my hands. Because, and, and I, I've wrestled with this over the years, the difference between Christianity and the Christian life 
and every other sphere of engagement in the world in which we live is absolutely counterintuitive. So in everything else, it's take the bull by the horns, go out, work hard, do your best, get your promotions, work hard, get another promotion. If that doesn't work, move, make a change, fix it, do things, get it done. And in Christianity, it's wait on the Lord. Put yourself in the place of waiting on him and trust him and let him fulfill his purposes. Remember, Naomi had such a hard time learning that lesson. Boaz, by way of contrast, has done that. And now we're told that, that lo and behold, this, this other kinsman, this closer relative has come by. And it just so happened that he came by. And, and notice there in verse 1 that Boaz said, turn, to, turn aside, friends, sit down, come in. And, and we're told in verse 2 that they have this discussion in front of 10 elders. They, they needed those um, arbitrating parties. They needed those witnesses that God required in the Old Covenant Church. They needed, they needed a multiplicity of counselors to, to decide about what was happening, whether it was right, whether it was just, whether it was fair, and whether it was honoring to the Lord, and whether it would be fair to both parties involved. And, and, and as this unfolds, and, and Boaz um, begins to tell this closer relative what's happened, and, and he tells him, Naomi's husband, Eli Melech, has died, and she's come back, and and she, she has a piece of land she's going to sell, and, and will you redeem her? In the law, the Leverite law, remember, we've seen that in, in uh, Leviticus, that if a man had a brother and he died, his brother should raise up an offspring for him, and, and that was to preserve the name. It was all about the name and the land and the heritage, the inheritance of the people of God. And... Boaz tells this man, as God is preparing redemption for Ruth and Naomi, he, he tells this man, listen, um, will, you, will you redeem Naomi and, and the man? And you can, you, can almost see, you can almost see the wheels turning in his head. He's thinking, piece of land, don't have to do much. Naomi's getting old, don't have to marry her. It's not much to take care of one widow. He says, I'll do it. He says, I'll, I'll redeem. Um, he's, he's, he's pro- this sounds like a good business transaction. Sounds like a good deal. And, um, and then Boaz, as God is working this plan out, says, oh, there's one more thing. Her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who is a widow, she needs to be redeemed as well. And she comes part and parcel with Naomi, and you're going to have to marry her, and you're going to have to raise up offspring. And the man says, whoa. Now, um, there is, um, there really is a very interesting focus on this man. By the way, he has no name in a chapter of names. Um, in Hebrew, the best transliteration, the Jewish uh, Bible, the Jewish um, Translation Society translates it, Mr. So-and-so. It's the best way the Hebrew could be transliterated into English, Mr. So-and-so. And and Mr. So-and-so came by, and Boaz said to Mr. So-and-so, listen, you need to, you know, will you redeem Naomi? Yeah, sure. And then, well, there's also Ruth. No, no, no. And, and, And here's the point. This man was looking out for number one. This man doesn't get his name recorded in the Bible because he was selfish. So... If you want to see 
what the Bible means when it says greed takes away the life of its owner, you look at Mr. So-and-so, and he gets nothing. He, he, he's out for number one. That sounds like a bad deal, because if he married Ruth, that would mean he had to raise up offspring to Ruth, and if there was offspring, that meant his biological children or adopted children now would get less of his possessions that he already has, and he'd have to divide the inheritance, and he doesn't want to do that. And now, you may say, well... Isn't that his prerogative? I mean, we live in a free society. Nobody can make you marry somebody you don't want to. But in God's law, God provided out of his great compassion for a widow like Ruth. And God expected Mr. So-and-so to step in and to be merciful and compassionate. He commanded his people to observe that law because God had been merciful to them. And it was a provision of his mercy and his grace. And this man was essentially saying, I don't care about the God of mercy. I don't care about the God of grace. I don't care about the poor widow. I don't care about anyone but myself. When there was a business transaction that would have benefited me, I would take it when it would hurt me or it would put any pressure on me or in any way put any kind of tension on what I get to keep for me and my family now, then I'm not going to do it. The deal's off. Now, it's interesting, if you go through this chapter, how many names appear in this chapter? Um, you have Boaz, you have Naomi, you have Ruth, the Moabitess, and then <clears throat> after uh, redemption is accomplished, you have mention of Malon and Kilion. Now, that's ironic, isn't it? Very interesting, what happens in this book is um, in Ruth, uh, the, the characters are introduced in order, Naomi, Ruth, Boaz. And then in this chapter, God walks them out the reverse way from which they're introduced. And when he does, Malon is mentioned because God is saying, I will redeem the name of Malon. I will redeem Ruth. I will redeem the namesake and the land inheritance and the promise, and I will again have mercy on this family. And so Malon is mentioned in this chapter. And then as the women come to praise uh, Ruth for what's happened and praise Naomi for what's happened, Rachel's mentioned and Leah's mentioned. And then in verse 12, Perez is mentioned. And then remember uh, Judah's daughter-in-law who played the prostitute, Tamar. She's mentioned and Judah's mentioned. And, and then the two genealogies at the end of the book, um, that whole lineage from Perez to David are mentioned by name. They are the people of God. This is God's redeemed people. And God has already planned all of this, and Mr. So-and-so has no part in it. And that is a grave warning to anybody who loves money rather than God. You know, this morning in the prayer of confession, <clears throat> we confessed our love of laying up treasures on earth more than in heaven. And I, I want to say this this morning. We all say, yeah, I know that's not right. But all of our lives show that we love treasures on earth far more than we should. Um, and you know what? If, if you can come up with a thousand ways to justify sin, a thousand ways. But at the end of the day, a man or a woman's character will be evident. Boaz was willing to lose out to do what was pleasing to God. 
Boaz, who had much, was willing. And, and it probably would have cost Boaz more than Mr. So-and-so. Because we don't know anything about that guy or what he had, but we know Boaz was fairly wealthy and fairly respected and in one sense had a lot to lose. In another sense, he had everything to gain. He gains Ruth. He gains a son. He gains a lineage. He gains a, her- a heritage. He, he becomes the grandfather of David. I mean, this book is moving to the kingdom and God is preparing everything. And the book is ultimately not the romance between Boaz and Ruth. It's about the preparations of redemption. And it's about God saying, I am going to fulfill my promise made in Genesis 3.15 to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And I'm going to bring that seed all the way through Tamar. And I'm going to bring that seed all the way through Ruth and through Boaz and through David and through Bathsheba. And then I'm going to bring Christ into the world. And that's, that's the point of Ruth. God is preparing redemption. Um, but it's also a picture of redemption accomplished. And you have this, this uh, strange exchange. Someone in our congregation was reminding me the other day that whenever they read this, it reminds them of that 2008 incident where uh, George W. Bush was at a press conference in Iraq and an Iraqi police officer threw his shoe at him. I don't know if you remember that. It, they played it a lot on the news. The guy just threw a shoe at the president. Um, it, was, it was symbolic to, to him that that was his disapproval. I throw a shoe at him. Here, this, this shoe exchange happens, and it's, and it's symbolic. And, and you're kind of like, what in the world is going on? <clears throat> Could you imagine if you went to, to buy a house, and instead of the realtor holding up a key, they gave you their shoe? Said, no, put it on, it's yours. Your foot's going to be on this land now. (laughs) And when I take this shoe off, it's saying, my foot will not be on this land. This is not my land. It will be your foot on this land. And and that's that's the exchange that happens. And, And here's the really interesting thing. Boaz could not accomplish redemption without obeying the commandments of the Lord. Now, you have to think carefully here. It was an absolute impossibility for Boaz to redeem Naomi and Ruth if he didn't fulfill the law of God. Here is the Redeemer. And, and there's, there's this actually this really amazing thing because if you ask the question, why, why are there, the, the, even in this book it says there's another Redeemer. Well, are there multiple Redeemers? Are there multiple ways of salvation? Are there, are there multiple ways that God can redeem? Surely God's big enough for there to be multiple ways. And this book is saying no. Even though there may appear to be other Redeemers, there was only one Redeemer. And there was only one who could redeem God's way and would redeem God's way. And, and he would obey the law of the Lord. He would not bypass the commands of the Lord. That's not legalism. Uh, for Boaz, to love God's law is not legalism. If you golf, it's not legalism to play by the rules. Um, if you play any sport and you play by the rules, that's not legalism. Those are rules. It's how the, the sport works. That's how the game works. And, and God's law was good. And, and Boaz loved God's word and his law and he loved the Lord even to the point where he knew he would not undertake the work of redemption apart from that. <clears throat> and Boaz is doing this willingly. 
Nobody is forcing Boaz to redeem Ruth. Boaz, in one sense, has no obligation to redeem Ruth. He could say, oh, she's a widow. I feel obligated. He had no obligation before God. The, the Leverite law didn't say if the brother wouldn't, then the next closer kin should. That, that wasn't what it said. It said that the closest kin to her should. And he was putting himself in that place and saying, I will willingly and voluntarily redeem the unwanted Moabitess Ruth. I will willingly. And what motivated Boaz? What was it? What, what enables you not to love possessions, but to love others? What enables us to relinquish control of what we want to hold on to here and, and serve others? It's love. Boaz, he loved. He was moved with compassion. He was, he was driven forward by love. And it was a voluntary love. It wasn't constrained. It wasn't compelled. It wasn't coerced. It was a willing love that flowed out of his heart, a love for the Lord that resulted in a love for his people and, and a willingness to go forward and to become the law-keeping redeemer. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> excuse me, what does that have to do with us? Well, if you haven't already made the connections, Boaz, as we've said, is a type of Christ. And um, Jesus is the only redeemer. There is only one redeemer. And, and the Bible says that he is our elder brother. Very interesting. In the law, I don't know if you know this, the kinsman redeemer, uh, the goel, the kinsman redeemer spoken of here, um, is mentioned three times in the law of God. Um, in one place, uh, it, it's a provision God makes for one who, who was murdered, that the kinsman redeemer would be the avenger of blood, and they would pursue the one who, who murdered their loved one um, all the way to these sanctuary cities where that person could find a place of rest. And, and, then, <clears throat> and then there is a place where um, the kinsman redeemer could go and redeem a relative who had um, become so financially indebted that they had become an indentured servant to someone else. The kinsman redeemer could come in and could redeem them from that indentured slavery. And then here, if, if the brother died, those are the three places, the, the avenger of blood, the deliverer of slaves, and if the brother dies, the, 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 the one who cares for the inheritance. And needless to say, Jesus is the redeemer who is the avenger of his people. In fact, he sheds his blood in order to take the guilt of his people, in order to avenge his people against all of their enemies. And, and Jesus is the one that sets those indebted to God for our sins free. He is the one that comes to proclaim the year of the Lord, the year of Jubilee. That's forgiven. That's canceled. Uh, prisoners set free. Jesus' first sermon in Nazareth, he said, I, this is today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Prisoners set free. Debt's canceled. He is, he is the kinsman redeemer, the elder brother, who, who releases his people from their bondage. And he is the beloved kinsman who weds the unwanted to himself in order to give them an inheritance. And he does everything that Boaz does. 
Um, he doesn't have a shoe exchange he spit on. Um, he doesn't have such a dignified transaction when he's mocked and beaten and, and, and um, crowned with a crown of thorns and had his back str- uh, torn open um, and mocked and reviled. He doesn't have such a dignified transaction at the gates. What happens to Jesus at the gates is, is brutal. And what happens to him at the hand of his father is brutal. The wrath that he endures on the cross. And, and yet, he doesn't go there until he's kept God's law. He doesn't do anything until he's perfectly obeyed the law of God and fulfilled all righteousness. He will not redeem and he cannot redeem until he obeys the Lord perfectly. And Psalm 40, he says of himself, Christ speaking in Psalm 40, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It's written to me. I delight to do your law, O God, your will, O God, and your law is written in my heart. And, and the writer of Hebrews says that's Christ speaking. And, and he said, I always do the will of the one that sent me. And he said to John the Baptist that he would endure a baptism of repentance because it was necessary for him to fulfill all righteousness. And that means if you and I are going to be redeemed, someone has to keep the law for us. The law of God has to be kept if you're going to be redeemed. There is no possibility of redemption if there's not a redeemer who will obey the law for us in order to redeem us. Notice that Ruth is not told to obey the law in order to get redeemed. Isn't that interesting? Ruth, by the way, is not even mentioned in this chapter hardly. It's all about redemption accomplished. Ruth, I like to imagine, is standing off to the side Sort of just waiting, wondering what's going to happen, not knowing, content to wait on the Lord, to fulfill the redemption. Remember what Naomi said at the end of chapter 3, Boaz will not rest until he's finished it. Jesus didn't rest until he cried out, it is finished. Um. Boaz, remember, came out of Bethlehem. He is the law-keeping redeemer that comes out of Bethlehem. Jesus is the law-keeping redeemer that comes out of Bethlehem. He's the everlasting ruler. He is the greater Boaz. And he does it willingly. And that's one of the marked features of redemption. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This command I've received from my father, but he says, I do it willingly. I, I, I willingly offer myself as a redeemer. I said, the son said to the father, in a sense, in the councils of eternity, my father, I will go. I will redeem a people. I have everything to lose. And he lost everything. He lost everything. Remember Mr. So-and-so wouldn't lose anything to do for someone else. And Jesus loses everything. He gives up his very lifeblood to redeem us. Um, How astonishing. He gives up his lifeblood. He gives everything he has. He doesn't have a bank account. So he empties his body of the blood that he came to shed for our redemption. Um, And he does it out of love. What is the picture here? It's that he loves his people, and because of his love, 
He lays down his life for them. I love in John's gospel where John, who, who is the apostle of love, I have a friend who many years ago uh, surmised, I think he might be right, that John is writing um, the fourth gospel at the end of his life. Remember, he lives a very long life, and he dies on Patmos. And he outlives most of the other apostles. <clears throat> Excuse me. And my friend, and I think he's right, speculates that John, who stood at the foot of the cross, who was there, all the other disciples fled, John was there. And John saw Jesus fulfilling the work of redemption. And at the end of his life, not as a young man standing at the foot of the cross, but at the end of his life, he writes, God so loved the world. And that it was as if the mind of John was so flooded with an overwhelming sense that Jesus did what he did because he loved those the Father gave him. That he would become known as the Apostle of Love. And as he's recording Jesus going to the cross, he says, John writes, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's the picture Boaz is setting for us. By the way, show me a fruitful, vibrant, active, selfless, uh, greedy-less, giving, committed Christian, and I'll show you somebody that believes that God loves them. Show me somebody living for self, and I'll show you somebody that doesn't believe it. I'm going to say that again. Show me a selfless, giving, compassionate, serving. I'll throw some more in there. Meek. Okay, keep going. Christian. And I'll show you someone that knows that God loves them in Jesus Christ. And show me somebody living for self, and I'll show you somebody that doesn't really believe it. It's the hardest thing in the world to believe. And yet the Bible says that's who the Redeemer is. And he does it merely by his grace. Let's finally look at the, uh, the fruit, if we could say that, the fruit of redemption. Uh, the rest of the book, as you know, is this picture of Naomi holding the child. Ruth has a baby and the hopes uh, are again stirred and, and the focus is not really on Boaz and Ruth. It's on the child and then it's on the genealogy and it's on the statements of the women praising Naomi and praising this child and calling God to bless this child and make this child great and uh, to bless them like Leah and, and Rachel and to bless them like Tamar. And one of the things you don't want to miss here is at the end of this chapter, the kindness of the Lord is just overflowing. That's, that's how Ruth 4 ends. The benefits of the redemption that God brings about through Boaz result in an overwhelming sense of the goodness and the kindness of the Lord on his people. They've done nothing to merit it. They don't deserve it. They have no stake on it, no claim on it. God has said, I will be merciful to whom I'll be merciful. And when he is, it is large in grace and mercy. And the blessing is great. And, and the undeserved nature is highlighted in the fact that in the genealogy and in the names that are mentioned, Leah is mentioned. The unloved Leah. Remember the one who wasn't loved by her husband, but she was loved by God. And then Tamar is mentioned. The one who, who was 
um, the, the one who played the prostitute with her father-in-law Judah. And, and, and then Ruth, obviously, is called the Moabitess. And then while she's not mentioned, allusion is made to the fact that Boaz is the grandson of Rahab, the prostitute, by Salmon, whose name is mentioned in this chapter. Now, why is that significant? Why Leah, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth? Because when we come to Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1, they are the four women, together with Bathsheba, the adulteress, who hasn't yet been born, and, and hasn't yet, when this story takes place in time, has not yet um, uh, become scandalous, as she does. But these are women who, uh, in and of themselves, should have no claim to redemption. And yet, this is the line of the Redeemer. And God is showing that his grace comes, and his grace is so great that he not only redeems guilty sinners... And he not only rescues guilty sinners, but he gives them a name and he restores their name and he inscribes their name on his heart and on his hands, his pierced hands. He inscribes their names and he covers their shame and he gives them a place in a royal line and they make him, they make him part of that kingly line from whom the Redeemer comes. And he gives them all of his own dignity and all of his righteousness and all of his glory and all of his beauty and all of his blessing and all of his bounty. And, you know, I said at the beginning of this book, in many respects, this book is telling us not just what God is doing here, but what he's doing through all of time. This book is God preparing and accomplishing redemption for all of human history. That's why these genealogies are moving to David, and then to Christ. Um, I want to ask you, as we close this morning, not just if you've seen your need for Christ, but when you think about the Lord Jesus, what, what sort of thoughts flood your mind and heart? to ask that question this morning. When you think about Jesus, what sort of thoughts flood your mind and heart? When you, when you think about the guilt of your sin, um, what's your immediate impulse to get rid of it? Um, when you examine your life and you take an inventory check of how you use your money or your time, your commitment to Lord's Day worship, your commitment to the saints, um, your, your time in prayer, your time in serving others and caring for others and thinking about others and in giving to others in, in all of those things. What, what is, the, what is the, the, the end result? What is the, the final calculation? Because what that is ultimately shows what we think about Christ as the Redeemer. Um, I want to ask you this morning, if you look at Mr. So-and-so, and Boaz, who do you more resemble? What does your life say you more resemble? A man that's just quietly living for self, holding on to everything he can, or someone seeking to serve others out of love, 
and a desire to bless? These are the, these are the big questions we're left with. And then I want to leave you with this final thought. As we weigh that and we see all of our sin and all of our failings, all of our shortcomings, all of our inability to measure up because we all fail so miserably, the question is, are we seeing again that Jesus is a worthy redeemer, that he didn't rest until he finished the work of redemption, that he cried out, it is finished, so that you might have rest, that you might have a namesake before God, that your name might be forever inscribed before the throne of God on the heart of Jesus. That's, that's the truth of scripture. That's who the redeemer is. That's the greatness of the work of redemption accomplished. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for these truths. We pray that you would stir our hearts, that you would enlarge our hearts, that you would soften our hearts, that you would shine the light of your glory in the face of Jesus into our hearts, that you would show us that he is the all-sufficient law-keeping the Redeemer and the willing Redeemer and the loving Redeemer, and that all of your purposes of grace and redemption are fulfilled in him. Our Father, help us to wait on you to know more of that redemption and make us to long for more of that redemption and make us, as we trust in you, Lord Jesus, to be conformed more to your image in our day in and day out lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name.